Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. With Mother's Day upon us. It's this weekend. Just to remind all you kids out there, we wanted to do something today to really celebrate the ladies, the mothers, the feminine individuals in our lives who helped raise us and shape us and form us and transform and elevate us into the individuals that we became. And so today we wanted to bring on a guest whose very life is an awesome example of what happens through the love of a powerful mom. As one of four boys raised by a single mom, Steve's life could have taken a radically and a very negative turn. Instead, armed by his mother's determination that her sons make a far better life for themselves and his own refusal to be shaped by negative circumstances, Steve forged a path to extraordinary success professionally and personally. Today, you're going to hear a message of a young boy who grew up under difficult circumstances and through the love of a mother eventually a bride a strong faith he's going to share the lessons that he learned at every stage of his life the people who influenced him along the way and an overarching message here it is an uncompromising life is one where you stay true to what is important to you what you believe in and what you love most My friends, you're going to leave this conversation ready to discover or perhaps rediscover what matters most to you and where you can make the biggest difference in your life. So for all the mothers out there, we thank you for the work and the lives that you lead. And for the rest of us sitting back, I encourage you right now to grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. You'll need it for this one. Grab a tall cup of coffee or tea or whatever is in your mug today and get ready to rock and roll as I bring on my friend his name is Steve White. So Steve, without further ado, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hi, John. I'm so honored to be with you today. Thank you for having me. Well, man, it is an honor. And I sometimes wish we had record before we actually hit record so that our listeners and viewers could hear the humanity of the call. Because that's when we talk about what do we want to get out of the interview and our family and our prayer rituals and what got us into this and our shared experiences You also just heard me give you a long rambling introduction, and I apologize to you for that. But if if you were on the spot 
maybe at a dinner party and someone said, Hey, I want you to meet my friend, Steve. And they do meet you. And they say, Steve, what do you do? Tell me about you. How would you respond to that? I would tell them, uh, I'm happy to be chairman and CEO of Steve White Incorporated. While Comcast and other companies purchases my services, which I'm thankful for, I am chairman and CEO of Steve White Incorporated. I have two shareholders, a lovely wife, her name is Barbita, and I have a son, Stephen Andrew White II. Check this out, John. We share the same birthday, December 18th. What I do is I believe I was placed on this earth to create a table of prosperity for as many people as possible. One of my favorite quotes is the Mark Twain quote. The two most important days in your life is the day you're born. The second is when you know why. Mm. And I was able to answer that question with a lot of help from a lot of people. That purpose is to make a difference and to create this table of prosperity for as many people as possible. That's what I would say. That's how I would answer that question. Coming from a man who lives that today, but most would have never imagined that would have been possible for you just by looking at your life as a young man. So I'm going to back the train way back, not into uh, 2022, where you and I are hanging out and doing life together today, but all the way back to the day Mark Twain said, the day you were born and to whom you were born. With as much freedom as you desire, would you share a little bit about your mother, Lainey? Well, you know, I love to start off, John, with say I was the perfect candidate to be a victim. Single mother. She raised four boys by herself. She had an eighth grade education. We spent our formative years in the housing projects of Indianapolis, Indiana. So while they're not as difficult as the housing projects of, say, Chicago, it's still the housing projects. And Lady married my dad, Linton White, uh, when she was 18 years old in 1960. I came along later that year. And uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. Although we didn't have a ton of money, she would clean homes on a part-time basis, but her primary goal was raising her kids. And when she made the painful decision to leave my father, she had a marriage license, but did not have a driver's license, had never held a full-time job, but had enough awareness to be present enough to see that her kids were headed for a path that was not going to be better than her path. And so she made the painful decision to leave my father in Orange Park, Florida, right outside of Jacksonville, Florida. Mm -hmm. We had a short stop in Upson County, Georgia, because she grew up in rural Georgia. We stayed there for three or four months. And my grandmother tried to convince her to stay right there in a very comfortable surrounding with her six brothers and sisters. But she made the decision to follow a brother to Indianapolis, Indiana, and that's where the journey began. I was about 10 years old, but she had enough focus and enough purpose. And I like to believe, John, she identified her purpose for being on this earth when she made that decision that she would sacrifice it all to ensure that her four little boys had a better life. So that's Lainey. She's now 81. She'll be 82 years old in October. When we left the housing projects, we moved to a small home about 1,000 square feet in Indianapolis on the east side. In 1974, 
We recently moved her into a townhome, John. First time she's ever had a fireplace. First time she's ever had a garage. First time she's had a place where it's just her place. And so now to see her living her best life and enjoying her grandkids and enjoying retirement, it warms my heart. So that's the story of Lainey Mae White. Um, and she's still with us and, and still just as alive as she was 30, 40, 50 years ago. She was alive. And you, you mentioned she made a painful decision to leave her husband. And you've outlined in the past, whether in your book or also in other interviews, some of the reasons why and every one of those reasons is extraordinarily valid. But as a 10-year-old boy with a daddy in the picture, you probably thought none of them were valid. You probably wanted your father around at any cost. What, what was it like for you at age 10 or maybe even a little before then to leave home and to have this family begin falling apart in front of you? Yeah. You know, John, I didn't realize it at the time my mom was leading an uncompromising life because her four boys were not excited. I'm the oldest. I was definitely not excited. And while my dad certainly had his issues, I never doubted his love for us. He was a hard worker. He just lost his way, but I never doubted his love for his boys. And so I saw it much differently than my mom. And I'm sure we did not make it easy for her because there are a lot of things that I did not enjoy. I never learned how to fish. I never learned how to talk to girls or to be a good husband. Uh, I saw different role models, uncles, and saw pieces of it. But to miss out on some of those things, I was never part of the Boy Scouts. I never learned how to make a fire with wood and all the things that my little boy is learning now. I missed out on that. So there was a great deal of anger early on. And a part of that was spurred by, I remember hearing my relatives say, those kids will not amount to anything. And so you don't think about those things, but here it is a number of years later, it is still fresh in my mind. So for a long time, I was competing against them and those Mm -hmm. words. What changed for me in life, I started realizing I had to compete against myself. And that's how you lead a fulfilling life. So my mother was experiencing all of that from her boys, but she was never, she never wavered. She was so focused on what she wanted to do. Let me give you one other story. And I'm sure you've heard this from other kids. When the street lights turned on, we had to be in the house. Our little noses, John, were pressed against the window while all the other kids played outside at night. But my mother was so focused on raising these four boys. That was a very difficult period because I didn't understand it. And I love to tell my mother now, I said, do you know the older I get, the smarter you become? (laughs) She said, what does that mean? I said, the wisdom you had as a young African-American woman raising four boys by yourself, uh, it is amazing that you were blessed with that level of wisdom because I can see very clearly now the decisions and how you raised us and why you were so strict and why you were very careful who you surrounded us with. I understand that very clearly. Now, I didn't at that time. And so I apologize for all the heartache I created. Your mother had a simple prayer 
raising those four kids, whether she was raising them in Florida or eventually Georgia, or eventually where you spent the majority of your young life, Indiana. Do you remember what the simple prayer is that she asks God each day? For? I, there were so many. I can't remember them all, but she would just cry herself to sleep saying, my only goal is, can I help these young boys become adults? And it was not about material things. It was not about, you know, having a big house. Can I raise these young boys that they will grow into men and uh, get married, have kids and make a difference in society? Well, she saw that the prayer was answered, but it took an uncompromising resolve on her part not only living away from some distractions and struggles, but also doing work that was agonizing, that was extremely grueling. Would you tell our listeners the, the kind of work that your mother did for those years in Indianapolis? Yeah. Her first job was cleaning uh, motel rooms. And this is motel with an M, not hotel with an H. There's not a spa. There's not in-room dining. This is the place, and maybe you remember this, you pull up to the door and your door's right there and you go right in. And it was right across the street from the Indiana State Fairgrounds. And she would take us there on the weekends to help us when she couldn't afford a babysitter when we were not in school. But my sense is she also wanted to teach us a lesson around hard work, proper attitude and effort, because people didn't always treat her with respect. They treated her like a motel maid, that she was somehow beneath them. But she never allowed that to impact her ability to show up to have a great attitude and be a great role model for her little boys. And that was grueling work. She did that for about three and a half years. Then she graduated to become a high school janitor at Arlington High School, where two of my brothers attended high school. And so, uh, so that was her big promotion. And she did that for 35 years before she retired. Steve, as you were a little kid, 10 years old, then 11, then 12, watching mom work, and then alongside her working with her, what was your desire as a boy? What, what did you imagine doing when you grew up? Well, being a postman, because in our community, one of the most respected figures, you know, certainly there were bad people, drug dealers, gangsters, those, those role models were always there. But the postman, because they seemed like they had a lot of authority and responsibility. They were carrying important packages. Uh, they were always very professional. Uh, they did not live in our neighborhood. They lived in other neighborhoods that were considered nicer. So at that time, my little world was limited to, boy, if I could become a postman, I could really have a great life. And then over time, John, you start to get exposed to uh, you know, different people. Because one of the brilliant things my mother did while she had this us against the world mentality because she had to wear that persona as dad and a mom, mm -hmm. she recognized that there were people there to give you a hand up and a handout. We were on welfare for three years and that was a handout and she recognized that and but she was committed to getting off welfare. But she also recognized there were people out there, well-meaning, that wanted to give her and her boys a hand up. And she could pick and recognize a hand up versus a hand out. And she always ran to the hand up. And so she created an environment where we could be exposed to other men and women 
that were doing positive things. She signed us up for Big Brothers, where I had a big brother who was an IBM executive who would take me to ball games. She was very selective about who she dated. And uh, Smitty or Evan Smith, who eventually became my stepdad, was a very important figure. So she was smart enough to think about people that wanted to give us a hand up, which then gave us exposure to outside of our little world. And the more exposure I got, that's when my dreams started to grow. When did a child who grew up with a mother who was serving as a motel cleaner recognize, you know what, if I keep applying myself and I, if I keep following the right people and taking the next right steps, man, I can get through high school and, and even into college. When did you start imagining? When did the world blow up to that level? Two people, Alice Goodrum, who was my speech teacher, and Ernie Hudson, who was a high school basketball coach. Let me start with Coach Hudson. I was a big sports fan. I love basketball, but not tall enough nor good enough to play on the team. And John, my high school was Arsenal Technical High School, one of the largest high schools in the state of Indiana. 5,500 kids. My class was 1,200 kids. So we got the best of the best. Mm. And I remember Coach Hudson, when I didn't make the team, he said, look, you seem like a good kid. You seem like you have leadership. You love sports. You think you might be interested to be affiliated with the team as the basketball manager. Now, at the time, John, they called us ball boys, which is not a great way to get dates to be referred to as the ball boy <laughs> in high school. But there was something about his offer that triggered something into me back to that hand up, that this felt like a hand up that would give me a great opportunity to be exposed to some terrific people, to be involved in sports. And so during that process, John, as I became a, a sophomore, junior and senior, he would work really hard with the basketball players to get them into college. And we had some terrific players. Landon Turner went on to Indiana University that he was part of the national championship team in 1981 with Isaiah Thomas and several others. Uh, Antonio Martin, who went to Oral Roberts and played basketball there. So as he was working with these young men around finding schools for them, he started saying, well, what are your plans, Steve? And college was not even on my radar, but as he started asking me about what are my options, what am I thinking, that little light that we all have inside of us, John, he started making it brighter. Mm. And every time he would ask the question, he would always follow up with, Steve, you have tremendous potential. There's nothing you can't do. And all of a sudden, that light started getting brighter. And then Alice Goodrum, my speech teacher, I would pop into the front row on every visit uh, to her class. And she started to take an interest. And John, one day she invited me to her home. Mm. And it was the first time I had seen real grass. And she had a beautiful home in a community called Fall Creek. And to see how she was living and to see how she took an interest in me. And she started asking me these questions as well. Because that's what great leaders do. They see things in you that you don't even see in yourself. And those two leaders saw something in me that I didn't even envision in myself. And all of a sudden, my light started getting brighter and it started to become a reality. And they introduced me to a program called GROUPS, G-R-O-U-P-S. At the time, it was a program to help 
young minority kids get into school at Indiana University. And that's how the journey began. And so each time they made that light brighter for me, and that made a huge difference in my life. It's making a huge difference in others' lives. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's going to allow you not only, though, to imagine graduating high school, which is a remarkable accomplishment. You're with a mother, as you mentioned, with an eighth grade education, without a driver's license, living in a city where she knows almost no one. And now yes. her eldest son is graduating high school. Not only that, going on to university. Talk about becoming a Hoosier. Well, it was, a, first of all, it was my only option. <laughs> so it was easy to get excited by Indiana. But the nice thing, it was 50 miles down the road. So it was close by. It's a well-respected state school, great business school. Um, and, the, and But something happened for me, John, because most times and a lot of times, we're just happy to get to the game. It's another thing to get to the game and now say, I'm going to win this game. And we see this play out in sports all the time and in life. I'm just happy to get to the game. But as I got there and started meeting people, it was now became not only are you at the game, how do you go win this game? How do you understand what the rules are? So it turned out to be an incredible experience. I made some great friends there. And I remember probably the most important decision that I made, because in life, there are only 10 or 12 decisions in our life that really matter. You got to get those right, because life is full of mishits or mistakes. And how you respond to those really shape who you are. But there are only 10 or 12 decisions that you need to get right. And for me, at the time, as a young African-American student, at a predominantly white university, the fraternity played a major role, the black fraternity, because it gave you a sense of community, a sense of family, someone that you could go through that journey with. And I made the decision not to join a fraternity. And I got connected with six other guys and we formed a group called Unique Incorporated that was part study, part social, maybe more social than study, but you get my point. And be honest, but Steve, be honest. That, in you. That's exactly right. I, Indiana is known as a party school. Yes, it is. That was one of those 12 important decisions that I made a decision to get connected with this group of men versus this group and that not to say there's nothing wrong with fraternities but for me getting connected with these gentlemen uh really allowed me to see a way forward in how to win at that game mm. as i hear you talking about the big decisions and making sure you get them right i'm reminded of being a relatively young man at my grandfather's 50th anniversary to his wife my beautiful grandmother and uh during his talk while he's thanking everybody for being part of his life he, he uh, said, you know, we made a decision. People have asked us how our marriage has been as successful and as happy as it's been. And I made a decision early into it that I would make all the big important decisions and my wife, Caddy, would make all the small ins insignificant ones. And then he said, and the good news is we haven't had to make one big decision yet. <laughs> so it was this funny play. My grandfather was a part of the greatest generation, Navy veteran, great man, but, but a, a guy who recognized the value of making the, the big decisions. There's not that many, but when they appear, you better be prepared for them. So you arrive on this campus, you decide to go a different path. You join this group of five guys. What, what did you learn from, from doing life with them? You're so influenced by who you surround yourself with more than you know. 
And most people don't understand. You think that you have a relationship with someone, that it's a casual relationship, but you don't realize until later on what an impact those people had on you, particularly as a young person. And so people often ask, well, what advice would you give a young Steve White? Be selective about who you invest in. Be selective about who you spend time with because they have an impact on you more so than you know. Mm. So to be around other men, particularly young African-American men that had a purpose, they were there on a mission. They were there to graduate. They were there to go on and make a difference. And to have that kind of positive influence around me for a four-year period. And these are men that I'm still friends with today, some 35, 40 years later, such an impact. I didn't realize how much they were impacting my life in a positive way. Um, but but that's that's what I learned. I learned what relationships were about, what I call road dog relationships, but I also understood the value of friendship and the influence it was having on me. And sometimes we made mistakes. It was not a perfect existence, but we made enough of the right decisions that allowed us to prosper, succeed, and ultimately graduate. Mm. Well, let's talk about graduation. I, I've yeah. always thought when it's my grandfather and his father and his grandfather all graduated university. And so when John O'Leary came along, one of six kids, the expectation, it was just an expectation. It wasn't even a big deal when it happened. Mom and dad were there and they applauded, but it was a yawn type moment almost. Yeah. My friend, you, your mother had an eighth grade education. And at this point, your father may or may not have even still been alive. I mean, the fact that you're here, Indiana University, yeah. cap and gown, tassels about to change sides of the cap. It's a huge moment. So my question is less around how did you feel about it and more around how did your mother feel about it? She cried the entire ceremony. And we have a phrase, she will say, God is good. And we will say all the time. Then I would say all the time. And she would say, God is good. Even to this day, John, when she comes to visit us, not based on the size of our home, but the love that she feels inside the home, she cries. Every visit, she just cries. In that moment, to see her son graduate mm. was important. But here's what she was also thinking. I had my next brother was also at Indiana. I had two other brothers who had not entered college that were preparing to enter college. And so she was thinking much bigger picture that, okay, I'm not seeing one person graduate. I'm seeing four boys. Now, three of us eventually graduated. One did not. One did not go to college. But she was thinking big picture that this is the start. This is how legacies start. So she was present enough in the moment because she made sure all my brothers were there at the event so they could witness me receiving that degree. So even at that moment, she was thinking a much bigger picture than just my uh, graduation. But we certainly celebrated. She took out a loan to buy me my first car. I was 21 years old. My salary was $21,500 with a company called American Hospital Supply. And I felt I had made it. I was making twice what my mother was making as a high school janitor at that time. 
but she took out a loan to buy me a car because she wanted to give me a hand up, back to that hand up, not a handout, a hand up. So that was one expense I didn't have to worry about. So I could start saving a portion of that $21,500. Again, thinking long-term because John, when you know your purpose, you're always thinking long-term. You're never making short-term decisions. And so that's one of the material ways I knew that she was very proud of me when she presented that Buick Regal. It was a great Buick Regal presented that card to me on my graduation day. I'm teetering between going up to Michigan and hearing about the first job and how successful you were and then how you flamed out of it or leaning more into the why. And I think I'm going to pivot into the why. So you're, you're 21. Your mother's a bit older than that, but she's got her own challenges. And you say, John, she's clear on the why. And when you are, you can think long-term. Right. How do we begin to become not societally, because I think if you look at things in macro, it's really hard to solve for the challenges individually. How do we individually become clear on the why so that you and I and others can think long-term selflessly? Well, you start with big questions. And so one of the ways I like to lead, John, is always through questions. And I remember a song called Glorious. And the song goes like this. We all die twice. We die the day they put us in the grave. We, the second time and the final time is the last time somebody mentions our name. Mm. And so if you step back and say, I envision a life long after I'm gone, I am still making an impact on others. If we just start with the right questions, back to those big decisions, because there are only 10 or 12 you're going to make in your life. So if we start with the big questions, that gets people thinking beyond just themselves. Because when I left school, I thought my why was all about making money, ensuring my family was never in poverty. That's how I viewed my life. That was going to be my purpose was to ensure that my mother had a better life, that I was there to help my brothers. And then ultimately, when I had my family, they would never have poverty. Because we're like the kids from the Great Depression. They said when kids grew up in the Great Depression, they always felt they were $1 away from going back into the Depression. So this idea mm -hmm. of poverty was always close by, like a friend, like a, like a, a date. And so it was always conscious of it. But I think we start with big questions. And again, I had people helping me with those big questions, but I, it took adversity. I had to get fired for yes. me to get reconnected with why am I here? Because clearly the way I'm doing it is not going to be successful. I just got fired <laughs> and I'm 23 years old. I've got a BMW. I got a hundred thousand dollar house. I am the talk of the church because naturally my mother's telling all of her friends about her son. And now all of a sudden I'm sitting here at 23 years old saying, is this it? Yes. Is this is what I've been working so hard for to feel this bad? There's got to be a better way. Talk about Darnell Martin and what he saw in this young man who early in his career, you were talking about, made it to the top wrong, man. A couple of years in, you're, you're rocking and rolling, and then you flame out because it's all about you. What did Darnell see in a guy whose life seemingly was all about him and who had just lost his job? 
Well, it's interesting, you know, we go back to that quote, Darnell has been gone for 25 years and here I am still talking about him and I'm sure others are as well. That is a life well lived when people are still talking about you. But, but I think what he saw, and I talk about this in my book, because there are only a handful of things that we can control. And I think he saw attitude and effort because those are the only two things. Although my work was focused on me, he saw that I was a ferocious uh, worker, that I put in the hours, I was committed, and I had a great attitude. I, wouldn't, I was not mean to people, I was uh, joyful, uh, I wanted to make a difference, I believed in the company, I had friends in the company. So I think he saw those two things because that is the foundation, John, that if you give me somebody with a great attitude, with an incredible work ethic and a desire, I can mold them. I can work with them. And they're young enough that they're not set in their ways. At 23, you're still trying to figure it out. Now, if I was 40, maybe it would have been different. But I was still at a point where I could be influenced in a positive way. And I think those are all the things that he saw. The other thing is that is so important. He recognized as an African-American executive that there were people that provided a hand up to him. And he had a great sense that it is now my responsibility to ensure that I am paying it forward and I'm bringing others along. And he probably also saw a little bit of himself in me. I'm sure he had you know, been impacted in a negative way and he saw that so those were all the things. Now, at the time, I was not asking a lot of questions. I was just happy that he was reaching out to me and taking a chance. Because think about this, John. He worked for the same company, just a different division. But he made a conscious decision to say, I'm going to put my name on this young man. Who does that? But that's what I think those are the things that he saw which had a great influence on me. Recently, I stepped away from my job as president of Comcast West, where I was responsible for 30,000 teammates, $18 billion in revenue, serving 13 million customers across the Western part of the United States, a big business. Huge. And think about how proud I was after 11 years that my replacement was a gentleman by the name of Rich Jennings, an African-American executive who had worked for me for 10 years. For him now to step into that role, uh, Darnell would be very, very proud of me. Not so much that he was an African-American executive, but I took the time to develop a slate of leaders that the company could look to, mm. to replace me and to see one of my own, somebody I had worked with for 10 plus years, Ascend to that role was one of my proudest moments. And I know Darnell would be proud because I paid it forward just as he did. So I'm going to ask some simple questions, but I think the answers are extraordinarily complicated. Did you sense that you dealt with headwind that others who might have been white would not have dealt with as you were a young leader, whether it was or eventually in Chicago or with PepsiCo and Colgate and on for, onward from there as you moved toward Comcast? Did you, Absolutely. And did you feel it tangibly or were there just whispers and you sensed that you, you were dealing with greater struggle? It was, sometimes it was loud. Sometimes it was whisper. The whispers are the most dangerous. I would much prefer for you to get in my face, tell me how you feel 
at least I know what I'm dealing with. Right. It's the whispers. It's the constant questions. Uh, after two questions, you've got to go to four or five questions that demonstrate that you have done your homework. And you really know what you're, you're talking about. And so, John, I had to make a very difficult decision. I'm not sure how it came to this decision, but when I started looking into the mirror, I started measuring myself against myself. I'm in competition with myself. So each morning when I look in the mirror and each night, did I do my best? Did I put myself out there? And there were some days I answered no. There were certain moments I did not give my best. And so now I start to measure myself against my own potential. And so then all of a sudden, I'm less focused on the whispers. I'm less focused on the loud noises. I'm just going to control what I can control. And then everything else will work itself out from there. And there were some dark moments. Let's be honest. I write about in the book where I, I thought I was passed over for different opportunities. But this idea that I was competing against myself, John, was freeing because it gave me a sense that I was in control of my situation. And so now I'm just going to focus on those two things. And it gave me a level of freedom. I tell my nine-year-old son, Stevie, uh, we call him Stevie. Stevie, dad just wants you to do your best. That is the only time you will disappoint me is when you do not give me your best. Mm. There's nothing else you can do that will disappoint your dad other than that. So for other leaders who are people of color or they're dealing with other challenges or they're in a difficult relationship or no relationship at all, and life just keeps coming at them. And it seems as if there's nothing they can do about it, whatever that thing is. Yeah. How do you empower us, Steve, to stay focused on what we can control and let go of the things we can't? What are some tangible things that we, my listeners, tuning in from yeah. you know, 75 nations around the world, man, yeah. but all of them dealing with struggle? What, what can they do to own what they can and, and be free to let go of what they can't? Back to those one of those 12 decisions I made the decision, I'm not going to be a victim. It is so easy, John, for us to feel sorry for ourselves that we feel someone has done something to us. And in some cases, it's true, but there's nothing you can do about it. But don't allow yourself to be a victim because that one day victim turns into a week, a uh, victim for a week. Then that victim for a week turns into a victim for a month. Then that victim of a month turns into a victim for a year. And now all of a sudden, five years have gone by because you viewed yourself as a victim. Don't live on, behind rose-colored glasses. Recognize what's in front of you. I'm not saying be not smart here, but there's nothing you can do about it. So just focus on being the absolute best that you can be. And I truly believe that the right situation will occur for you. And that's where it gets back to your purpose and why. Because all of a sudden, John, if you're living your purpose and why, 99.9% .9 of the time, it involves impacting others. That's how you measure success. Not the bank account, not how much money you have or how many accolades or awards you get. It comes down to, are you impacting others? And that is difficult. And that's why it's so important to start each day on purpose. What is your purpose today? 
Is your purpose today to choose joy? Is your purpose to live your best life? Every day you have to make a conscious decision. This is not a decision you can make and put in a drawer. You literally have to make it every single day, sometimes multiple times during the day. And people say, well, how do you do that, Steve? I say, the first thing I do is I start counting my blessings. And usually, John, when I get to the third or fourth blessing, my attitude has changed dramatically because I know my situation could be much worse. Even cleaning motel rooms. My mother said, be thankful you can pay taxes. I'm like, why would you be thankful for that? Because that means you're making money and you have a job and you can pay taxes. That's a totally different way to think about taxes. Agreed. I, I, I always lovingly chastise people who complain about their tax bill. Right. In particular, when they complain how huge it is. Here, just You should see how much money I spent. What a, what a blessing. What a blessing. So uh, you and I agree on counting the blessings as you step into the day. I want to count one of your blessings right now and have you celebrated. I believe it was a blind date with a woman yes. who uh, eventually you're going to meet and you may even fall head over heels for, you may even marry relatively quickly named Barbita. Talk about where you were in this chance date that eventually arrives in your life. I was working for Pepsi-Cola at the time. Uh, she'll be mad because this will tell you how long we've been married, but it was 1990, May 11th. I remember it like it was yesterday. We had two friends that said the two of you should meet. And I remember she called me at 438. Fortunately, I was present enough to hear something in her voice. I have no idea what it was, but it was something in her voice that says, this could be different. Now, I wouldn't think that I was going to marry her. And I was sitting there, John, at 8 o'clock, because I'm a time nut. I love to be on time. At 8.11, <laughs> this beautiful woman comes up and says, are you Steve? I write in the book, I was going to be whatever she called me at that moment. I said, yes, I am. And she said, hi, I'm Barbita. She was an IBM executive, so she had on the Glenn plaid suit with the white shirt with the little bow tie or things that, you know, she was, so she was very professional. We had dinner. I called her when I got home and we talked for three hours at night to probably 2 a.m. in the morning. Then five and a half months later, we eloped. We went to Maui. This was a long time ago. We should have bought real estate there and we got married and the rest is the rest is history. So we've been married a long time. And that blind date was uh, obviously one of the greatest days of my life. And I go back to those 12 decisions, John. That certainly is one of those decisions who I selected as my mate in life. That was one of those important decisions. And fortunately, we got it. We both got it right. And it, you know, it's challenging. Any long marriage has its challenges. Uh, but we went into this with a commitment that we both had come from broken homes and we both went in with the commitment that we were going to do everything we possibly could to ensure that we broke this generational curse. Mm. And so far, so good. You've got to know this woman a little bit over the last 32 plus years. Now that you can listen back in on that voice you heard that first night at the Hilton, what, what did you hear? What, what is it about her voice and her beauty and her leadership and her selflessness in her life that you found and find so attractive? I'm a serious person. There are no games here. 
although she was much younger than me, she had certainly had the maturity of a much older person, but she was a serious person and she was just in the process of recommitting herself to the Lord. And so she was going through her own challenges and journey as she was figuring out who she was, but just to see how focused just see it even in her words, the way she talked, there was clearly a very serious person on the other end of this phone that was very focused. And then when I met her and she talked about her hopes and dreams, she had her own place, she had her own car, she had money in the bank. This was clearly not someone sitting around waiting for some Prince Charming to come along. She had a clear vision for her life. Mm. Uh, and that that became very clear. And so... That's why my greatest uh, level of success I can attribute to the two women in my life, my mom, those early foundational years, and certainly Barbita over the last handful of years. Uh, I'll share a story with you. Uh, like most young couples, we wanted to have children. And we just assumed, like most young couples, we'll make a decision one day and children will just happen naturally. Well, it did not happen for us naturally or easily. We lost a couple children along the way uh, through miscarriage. So it was a very difficult process. And so I remember we moved 11 times in my career before Stevie joined us. And John, at every home, there was a door. She would put a pink or blue ribbon on the door. It could be a closet, it could be a bedroom. She was envisioning her nursery for her child. Even with my faith wing, she never lost focus on that. And then certainly later, we had tried in vitro, we had tried a number of things, didn't work. And then naturally, <laughs> we got pregnant on March 30th, 2012. And then nine months later on December 18th, my birthday, this little boy entered the world. So if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. What a gift, Steve. That, that is such a beautiful story. I'm so grateful that you shared yeah. it. 94 and a half percent of headlines are negative. According to the Harvard Business Review, 94 and a half percent of what is growing wow. towards you reminds you how horrible you and life is. You have a different approach. You, your spouse, and your little boy, Stevie, now you write headlines on the front side of the year. And the headline is predictive so that at the end of the year, this is the headline that we are going to lift up high, but you write it on the front side of the year. It's a really cool approach. What is your family headline for this year? For every Christmas when we go away for vacation and we on purpose go away at the end of the year because it's a time to renew and refresh and get ready for the new year. And we decided as a family to choose joy. That is our headline. So at the end of 2022, when the final newspaper article comes out, we want the headline for our family is that we, we made a decision to choose joy. And that sounds easy, John, but it's not. But every morning we consciously wake up to make a decision to uh, have joy in our life today. Now that starts before we wake up, even the night before, my wife and I, we pray together, we spend time together, we get ourselves in the right mindset. So when the next day comes, we're ready to go. And sometimes we don't, sometimes we struggle with that. So it's not easy, but we have a clear vision for our family and that's what we're striving for and so far so good. 
We, we could spend at least another hour unpacking your life story and your book and what you refer to it as road dogs. Instead, why don't you just tell us succinctly, why did you write Uncompromising? What a great love letter. As I talk a lot, John, none of us reach a level of success by ourselves. If we think that, boy, we've got real problems. There are a number of people that gave us a hand up. And I go to great lengths to talk about a hand up versus a handout. A hand up is an opportunity to display your real talents. And so what a great way to write a love letter to all the men and women like Darnell and Alice Goodrum and Ernie Hudson, uh, my uncles, my stepdad, uh, Evan Smith. What a great love letter to write to them than to put this on a piece of paper and share it with others so others might benefit you know, from what I learned. So that's number one. Number two, it supports my purpose, which is to create this table of prosperity for as many people as possible. And so that's why we wrote a book, not for just business people, but for that single mom, maybe that college senior who's trying to figure out what he or she are gonna do with their life. Or there's that uh, dad who's struggling because he's a single dad trying to maintain a career. So I tried to write a book that would serve as many people as possible. So that's the second reason it supports my purpose. Mm. And number three, particularly um, history is bound to repeat itself if it's not dealt with. One of my most exciting moments was when I signed my book and presented it to my nine-year-old son. And he says, dad, my name is on this book. I said, yes, Stevie, my life is your life. Your life is my life. And I wanted you to understand the life your dad had uh, went on this journey he's been on. So I wrote this book partly for you. So today I give you this book. And when you're old enough, you'll read it and you'll really understand it. Uh, so that was the final reason is to present something to my son that Long after I'm gone, he can then present it to his son. And we've already talked, that'll be Stephen Andrew White III, and then maybe the fourth and maybe the fifth, that this book will be passed on, you know, as we go. Because as we talk about succession planning in life, we spend a lot of time talking about the financial part of succession planning to ensure that they have money and resources. But what about the human and intellectual part of families? Mm. So I'm able to capture that in this book that my hope is 100 years from now will still be circulated within our family. I have a dear brother of God named Don Eggleston. Don's a listener, so he's listening to my voice and yours right now. And Don in leadership training used to talk about inheritance. And he would have the audience write down what they've received in inheritance. And then the real exercise actually wasn't about the dollar sign. It was about the real inheritance, the, the characteristics, the traits, the love, the experiences that those who've come before you have graced you with. And it's a powerful exercise. And I'm glad that you are walking little Stevie and then his son, Stevie, and then his son, Stevie, and every other Stevie that you're able That's to right. hold old man, Stevie, <laughs> with this worthy inheritance. So my friend, as we wrap up our conversation, we do so with our tennis shoes on. We're going to sprint to the finish line through the tape and beyond. The first question for you is, what's been the most impactful book that you've ever read? Most impactful book you ever read? Yeah, there have been so many good books. Obviously, the good book, as my mother calls it, the Bible is obviously very always near and dear. But there was a book I read. It's called, and 
the 10 Enduring Truths of Leadership. I think it's by Barry Cosner. Uh, I think that's his name. And he went back and looked at all the greatest leaders, Martin Luther King and others. And he came up with these 10 Enduring Truths of Leadership. And it talked about what all of these leaders had in common. And there were 10 things. This idea that leadership is an affair of the heart. They don't do it for money. They do it because they get so much joy out of impact. Of. That's one of those 10 enduring truths. So that is a book that I keep close by. It's 150 pages. So I read it often. And it gives me a mirror to look at on a regular basis to say, am I representing these 10 truths of leadership? So that's a book that's been very, very impactful in my life. And I share it whenever I get an opportunity. Beautiful. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in Indianapolis that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? This idea that if I knew I couldn't fail, I would do it. Mm. There are little things that I don't do today because fear seeps in. My son is an excellent swimmer. I'm not a swimmer. It's something I want to do. But I've got to work through this little fear thing that as an older gentleman, I can still go learn to swim. But when you're a kid, you just have this natural curiosity just to try things. You're not thinking about failure. You're not thinking about what your friends are going to think. You just go do it. So your friend and mine, Michael Palagon, and I created a book called In Awe, which is all around returning to that childlike wonder that believes and then creates a life that others think is impossible. And so I, after interviews, I frequently will send a guest a copy of either my mom and dad's book yeah. or my first book. But for you, my friend, I'm definitely going to send you the last book in awe because I think Great. it's possible. It is possible like your nine-year-old to imagine it, it could happen and then activate it. So mm -hmm. uh, speaking of activating it, if your home caught fire and your family's out and your pets are out and you have an opportunity to run back inside and grab one thing that matters, what's the one thing you would grab? There's a little box that I have. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but guys can have baby showers as well. And so my team had a baby shower for me and gave me, you know, different gifts and all of this. But John, one of the things that I end my book with this title, what's in your box. And these 15, 16 leaders wrote individual notes to my son mm. who was not born at the time and said, let me tell you about your dad. And so I get teary just even thinking about it. So it sits in my office. So if my family's out, we don't have pets yet, but negotiations are ongoing for a dog. They're all safe. The one thing I would grab is this little silver box because I have not spent time with Stevie going through it yet. I want him to be old enough so he can truly appreciate what these men and women were saying about their dad as a way to give him another example of what a man and what a dad and what a husband should be. Not that I'm perfect, but at that moment in time, this is what these 16 people wrote about your dad. That's what I would go grab. That's the box that I keep here in my home office. That's what I would go grab. Man, I, I might beat you in and uh, grab a box for you. It's, it's one of the most beautiful gifts I've ever heard of. And um, I'm going to demand that you take a picture of it and send it to me because I just want to celebrate Great. generosity and thoughtfulness when you mm -hmm. see it. So 
what, what a gift. If you could sit on a bench with anybody living or dead and have a wonderful conversation on a perfect day, who would you want to be seated next to Steve? My dad who left this earth when he was 37 years old, died an alcoholic, who was a good man who lost his way and just to sit on a bench with my son, Stevie, sitting over here so he could see the next generation and to see that the foundation he poured into me mm. and to see what I've become just for an hour because I would want him to see what his son had mm. become and to hear him say, Steve, I'm proud of you. Steve, what is the best advice your dad, your granddad, your mom, some mentor, some coach, your son, whomever? What's the best advice you've ever received? Well, there have been a lot. Don't be a victim is one. But Steve, I know more about you based on who you spend time with and how you spend your time. So guard that. Guard your time and who you spend time with. Guard it like it is a state secret. Because I know more about you based on how you spend your time and who you spend it with tells me everything I need to know about you. If you could go back, leave Denver, go all the way back to the Midwest, back to Bloomington and share some advice with that 20-year-old version of yourself. And you whispered about this earlier in the yeah. interview, but what, what, what encouragement, what wisdom would you tell yourself at age 20? Relax. Don't be in a hurry relax. Everything's just not that serious. I'm a serious person, you know? And so everything felt like it was life or death because I talk about in my book, this idea of exhaustion. Yeah. You know, sometimes you feel like you're carrying your entire family on your shoulders. Sometimes you feel you're carrying your entire race on your shoulders. You feel that everybody's watching you. So you take life very, very serious. There was a video I saw. It's an old video because I can tell by the lapels. They take a jar and it's got five big balls in it with a lot of little balls in it. They pour it all out and they do two exercises. Let's put all the little balls in. There's no room for the big balls. But if you put all the big balls into the bottle first, there's plenty of room for the little stuff. Don't sweat it. There's plenty of room for the little balls. Brother, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I know he was here. When we were in high school, we would carve our name on a bench that says Steve was here. So 30 years from now, when somebody came in, they could see Steve was here. My greatest hope is people will say he was here. I see his fingerprints. I see the fruit from his tree. I see trees over here, far away. I could see Steve's fruit on those trees. I know he was here. Can you imagine, John, going through life and there's no fingerprints, there are no footprints, there's no imprint whatsoever that you were here? Steve White is the author of the book, Uncompromising. It is a phenomenal book, not just about his life, but ultimately yours and how we can live it better going forward. Steve, I want to thank you for being uncompromising in your values. I want to thank you for sharing part of that story with us today. And I want to thank you for being a bright, brilliant beacon to the rest of us that the best is yet to come. 
Thank you, John. It's been such a pleasure being here with you. And I go into every experience looking to learn, and I've certainly learned a lot today. I'm grateful for our time together. Thank you. Well, my friends, that is Steve White. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. my friends, I'm always looking as I listen to these conversations and I'm part of these conversations for one specific takeaway from these conversations. And today, you know, there's several, obviously. One is just Steve's joy for life. Another is his mother. My gosh, that 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 beautiful lady is so encouraging, so inspiring. What, what a woman, what a leader, what an example she is and what a lesson she taught. Steve, there is a difference between a hand up and a handout. Choose wisely. There's a difference between a hand up and a handout. Choose wisely. He also brought up the power of Big Brothers Big Sisters, which is an organization I am active in. I have a little myself. We've gone through this now as a family a couple different times. We love it. And if ever you're looking for a way to not just give a handout, but actually a hand up, let me encourage you today to reach out to your local chapter of Big Brothers Big Sisters Here's the thing, when you get engaged, when you show up, when you serve, when you sign up, it's going to change a life. It's just not going to be the one you thought. Yeah, you, you're, you're going to absolutely elevate the life of the little, but the life that I'm referring to here is yours. So if you really want to change a life today, get involved with Big Brothers Big Sisters. It is a phenomenal program. And if you want to take the next right step into programming like this, if you're looking for John Great episode. I love this one. Where can I learn more about this kind of programming? Well, here's the thing, family. We have a Mother's Day playlist just for you. So if you want to learn more about the power of a mother to influence good around them in their lives, check it out by going to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast and then go to motherhood. You'll see a link to it below that the podcast. One more time. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. And then you'll see a category titled motherhood. So to all the moms out there, Beth O'Leary looking at you, Susan O'Leary, my mother looking at you as well, and all the ladies who helped raise and shape and form us, we want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. And for the rest of us, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community and for believing like I do that the foundation is firm the headwind may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Well, Akili Company's culture sets them apart, and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Keely Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keely Cares by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.